Lord Jesus, we thank you so very much for your grace, which comes to us new every morning, God. We know that um, the road ahead is often uncertain, it's often unclear, and we trust in you because of who you are and what you've done. God, thank you for every single person in this room that has come this morning. We thank you for the Emmaus Church, for its staff, its worship team, all the volunteers, and Andy and his family, Lord, the, the people that surrender themselves to your kingdom every week for the work that happens in this church, Lord. We thank you for it. In your name, amen. It was a script seemingly straight out of Hollywood. Two fugitives were on the run, driving out of the city in a nondescript right van as they sought to escape the authorities. Just 24 hours earlier, their world had come crashing down. These two fugitives happened to be pastors. German Christians who had refused to obey the Nazi regime and were in open defiance of its genocide against the Jews. For the last two years, they had risked everything to provide safe passage for Jews out of a German uh, nation through a network of underground churches. This certainly was not the life that these pastors had envisioned. But after converting to Christ during the beginnings of the Nazi rise to power, they had abandoned the comforts of normal life and surrendered their personal safety to the mission of the kingdom. They were converted through the ministry of a local Christian leader who was a founder of the underground church. And it was this leader that had called them into the work of helping the Jews. The day before, their worst nightmares were realized. The Nazi guard had invaded the home out of which they were working and had arrested their leader. These two men were hiding in an upstairs attic and and were able to escape. Now, with their leader gone and their life in shambles, they were helpless. No family, no friends, no place to go, and, and no means of starting over. As they drove through the night, one of the pastors turned to the other and and said this startling statement. What I find most scary about God is not when he speaks to us, but when he is silent. It's very likely that none of us in this room will ever have to encounter doubt in the Christian life in the same way as, as harshly as these two pastors. However, in some form or another, anyone who chooses to follow after Christ will come to identify with this pastor's statement. Where do we look when the circumstances of life begin to press in on us and God's presence and his work seems to be distant? Where do we look when there seems to be a disconnect between the words that we read on pages of Scripture which call us to always have faith and to trust in the promises of God, and the real-life pages of life which call us to doubt the future and doubt God's promises. We often think of these types of struggles as modern questions, 
but truly they are as ancient as the faith. Today we're going to turn to an Old Testament book that I think encounters these tensions head on. And we're going to put a capstone on the series that you all have been working through in the book of Ezra. Turn with me to the book of Ezra, and we'll be focusing our time on chapter 6. Ezra uh, is a prophet about whom we know very little. And he likely wrote this narrative around 440, 450 B.C. Now that date is important because this meant that Ezra would have been a witness to one of the most tumultuous periods in Israel's story. Now, in order to appreciate the full force of chapter 6, we're going to have to set it up a little bit, and we're going to have to dig into the historical context pretty deeply. We're going to have to immerse ourselves in the story, so just indulge me for a couple minutes while we set this story up. As you've likely already heard from Andy before, uh, Ezra begins in in chapter 1, verse 1, with a decree. This is a decree from Cyrus II, uh, the king of Persia, around 538 B.C. Now, this decree in 1-1 ended what we call the Babylonian captivity of Israel. Something likely you've already heard about again from Andy. Because of of flagrant and consistent idolatry and rebellion against God, God uses a a foreign nation, Babylon, to to bring judgment against Israel. King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon uh, invades Israel, Judah, takes the Jews captive, probably around 607 B.C., and then takes them out of the land into their land. Now, as prophesied in Scripture, this was to last 70 years, this captivity. To put it mildly, this was a torturous 70 years for the Jewish people. Life during the captivity was was desperately difficult. Indeed, the most traumatic period in all of Israel's history. We're talking about forced bondage, uh, uh, widespread mortality, the breakup of families... And as if this weren't not enough, the the physical suffering was compounded by this pervasive fear of of spiritual and national abandonment. A feeling of distant separation from the God who had formed them by his own hands. Put yourself in one of these exiles' shoes, just for a second. You've been told from birth that, that you're part of a chosen nation with the sacred lineage that that the God of the universe has promised to save you and your family and your people and your friends from your enemies, and he's going to reign over in a glorious kingdom. Okay, so you have these promises that you know have been passed down, and yet you look around you, and and there's a deplorable state. So naturally, the, the legitimacy of these promises begins to be questioned, don't they? Can God be believed? On on what basis should I think that my current state will give way to something greater? Much like the the questions the pastors were asking as they drove away that night. So in light of this, we might be prepared to 
understand in some small way the significance of Ezra 1.1 to a Jew who had experienced captivity. Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. This decree was, was a beacon of hope, a small sliver of light that might have helped uh, these people understand again their promised future. Okay, so in 1 1 and chapter 1, we, we read a decree. In chapter 2, uh, these exiles start to return to the land, they start to, to filter in. They're, they're restoring their community and they recognize right away their, their desperate need for the hand of God to be on them during this time. They decide to renew their, their festivals, their offering program, their sacrifices. But they also realize something else. For centuries, the temple, for hundreds of years, the temple had been the place of worship for this community. So they decide we need to rebuild our temple. In an amazing account in in chapter 3, as we move through the book, the impoverished community surrenders all the limited resources that they have and decide to rebuild the temple. It's an amazing account in in Ezra 3. Again, imagine these are people that had been through, been to hell and back in some ways. So we read starting in verse 10, chapter 3. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the son of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Listen to this as we jump down to verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of father houses, old men who had seen the first house, meaning they had been through this time of trial, wept aloud with a, a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many others shouted aloud for joy, so that people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. It's an amazing scene. You've got people who have been there for a long time, and and they can't even shout for joy. Tears are flowing out of their eyes. And, And then you have maybe a younger generation who's who's not really experienced the captivity in its full force, but but they're celebrating as well because they know something great has happened. But But as it has always been, the road to restoration is not smooth. We learn immediately, and this is something that that you all uh, learned about last week as well, that a... Upon rebuilding the temple and starting that process, the surrounding people in the land nearby began to oppose the project. No doubt fearing that 
the nation would rise to a position of power and might be a threat to them. So what do they do? They write a letter. And they were able to get this letter all the way up to the king of Persia at that time. And they warned the king that that the Jews were rebuilding a temple so that they might be able to rebel ultimately against Persia. And, And indeed that Persia would never be able to recover tax from them because the Jews worshipped a different god. They weren't going to to worship the Persian deity. Now, as we might expect, the the king reads this letter and and immediately steps into action, right? He he forces them to stop by force of arms. Another disappointment. Another setback for these people. Now enter two uh, very important figures, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. We are told in Ezra that these two prophets stepped in and and they said, no more. We are going to continue to rebuild the temple. And we will trust in a leap of faith that God will intervene. In Haggai, the book of Haggai, we we read in chapter 1, verse 6, about the state of the situation in this time of opposition. It wasn't good. Haggai describes it as, as housing shortages and, and disappointing harvests and harvests and lack of clothing and jobs and inadequate funds. So here we have a depressed people who are once again opposed and they decide this is it. We are jumping in faith. So what happens? Well, God intervenes, doesn't he? We read in chapter 5 and into verse in chapter 6 that, that as they began to rebuild, obviously the suspicions of a local Persian governor were aroused. He comes to them and he says, on what authority are you rebuilding? Now keep in mind, this is several years after the original opposition was, was stated. Now to the surprise of this governor, the, the Jews respond in this way. It's your own king that told us that we could return to the land and rebuild. They tell them, go to your archives. You will find a decree from King Cyrus II. So this is where we pick up our story in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 reads like this. Then Darius, so Darius is now the king of Persia made a decree, and a search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives, where the documents were stored. This is a very common thing in the ancient world. Uh, Throughout uh, conquests or different military or or administrative junctures, they were keeping records so that future future generations could understand what was uh, going on in history. They didn't have history books in this time. This was their way of, of keeping track. So in a, in a town called Ekbanta, uh, the capital in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written. In the first year of Cyrus, the king, Cyrus the king, issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. The place where the sacrifices were offered, the temple in other words, and let its foundations be retained. And it goes on in, in detail to even describe that, you know, the perimeters of the temple and how big it should be. 
So jumping down in verse 5. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So the Persians go and they find this decree. And it's a very amazing decree. It tells them not just that they should be allowed, the Jews, to rebuild, but all that was taken from them by Babylon, which Persia conquered, was to be returned to them. So obviously, this local governor, Tatanai, hears this. And, and we read in verse 6 this. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river. Won't even try to pronounce that next word. My Hebrew is not very good. And your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, and this is important... I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Whatever is needed, in verse 9, bulls, rams, sheep for burnt offerings, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests in Jerusalem require it, Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. This is amazing. So this local governor who had issued the order to to stop, hears from central headquarters, the king of Persia, that that they should be let go. And, And not only that, that all their stuff needs to be returned. And not only that... You all need to pay for anything else that they need. Any other resources that they, that they require, you need to pay for. We, we, we read uh, that something was to be taken from the royal treasury, meaning the tax that would normally be collected from that region was not going back to those people of Persia. It was going to go to the people of Israel, to the Jews. Something very interesting as well that I want to point out in verse 10. If you see that, that this governor closes by saying that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. See, it's not as if God came in, changed this person's heart, this governor, to want to help the Jews for the Jews' sake, right? He's clearly after his self-interest. This is a very common of, of the Persian Empire. Their thinking was, let's just get all the gods on our side to help our cause. Probably some logic to that, I suppose. God stepped in, used a secular entity to accomplish his will. Friends, hear me on this. These words seem relatively simple to us. But to the man, Ezra, who wrote them, they must have opened up a floodgate of tears that drenched the very papyrus on which he wrote. 
Imagine the disbelief of someone like Ezra who had been through this long journey in hearing these words, in writing them down. Not only was the temple going to be rebuilt, but it was immediately fully funded. A lavish act of grace from an empire not exactly known for such extravagances. The story of Ezra... The story of the exiles and their return to Jerusalem is indeed an incredible story. A lost and disenfranchised people on the cusp of utter destruction, overcome with disbelief in the promises of God to save them, return to their land and despite several setbacks are given renewed hope in God. Relentlessly, their circumstances force them to doubt God. And God steps in in a big way. But I think, I think what we find here in the book of Ezra is something much greater than a mere nugget in Israel's history. What we find here in the book of Ezra is a glimpse of something much more incredible. Something that neither Ezra nor those exiles could possibly have fully understood. The story of Ezra, I believe, points us to the big story. And we cannot leave these pages without seeing the connection to our own lives as followers of Christ in a broken world. Friends, this is what I believe. Today, God wants us to find him and to find ourselves in the story of Ezra. Precisely because here in these pages, we find a signpost to the gospel. See, Ezra is is one stop on a long and windy road. A road that began in the Garden of Eden and that has its peak at the place of the skulls, the cross of Christ. See, the story of Israel's history is the story of a wayward people. A people chosen by God but constantly struggling to live out its calling. Is this not me? Is this not you? Is this not all of us? Just as Israel was set apart to have an intimate relationship with him, so too God crafted all of humanity in perfect harmony in the garden. Just as Israel was taken into captivity by its own sin and a wedge was driven between them and God, so too humanity was overtaken by sin and separated from its creator. And just as the exiles were able to return to their land and reclaim their former fellowship with God and each other, so too God redeemed his precious creation. And here we find what what the returners from the exile could never have envisioned. What they experienced. God restoring their national identity and liberating them from their enemies. Was only a shadow of the divine restoration God would accomplish by coming down to earth himself and dying on a cross. Ezra saw the exiles, Ezra and the exiles, 
saw a God that used opposition to his work to actually accomplish his work, right? What else does this remind us of? A God who used the greatest opposition of all, the murder of his innocent son, to accomplish the greatest thing of all, salvation. We're now prepared to to better answer the question that I posed at the beginning. Where do we turn when doubt about God and his promises overwhelm us? I mean that literally in this life that we experience now. Where do we turn? We turn to the cross because it is there that we find the ultimate evidence of a God who will stop at nothing to save his people, to save you and to save me. So what does this mean for us today? Perhaps even some of us now who find ourselves in the throes of these types of struggles. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 where we're going to close our time this morning. Hebrews is all about one major theme. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's a very simple and profound theme. Now, in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews is trying to establish the supremacy of Christ over the Old Testament way of sacrifice. Speaking to a, a largely Jewish audience who was used to hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years of animal sacrifices, post-cross, the writer is trying to convince them and us that Jesus Christ has something superior. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and I'll just jump right into the middle of the chapter, says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. What an amazing statement. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast in verse 23. The confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. It's a very full two verses, three verses. The heart, the, the guts of this verse is, or this section is in verse 22. Let us draw near. But before the writer gets to that main point that he wants to make, draw near to God, he gives you several reasons why. He says, We have confidence to draw near, not not ashamed, not, not with hesitation. We have confidence in the midst of our doubt about God to draw near because someone else went before us, right? There used to be a curtain between us and God. Someone else went through there, Jesus Christ, and he broke his own body in order for that curtain to come tumbling down. So that now we can enter with confidence, holding fast our confession. Where do we look when doubt creeps in? We look to the cross. On what basis? 
because of Christ's sacrifice, which has given us intimate access to the very throne room of God. I see two important points of application here that I want to leave us with. Number one is this. If you doubt, you are not alone. The testimony of scripture is very clear. From the first page to the last, doubt comes with following after Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter how old you are, what stage of life you are, where your resources are at. Know that you're not alone and take comfort in that. But the second point is this. Your story, your individual story, my individual story, finds its home in the big story. Meaning that you were never meant to experience the highs and lows, and there are many lows, of the journey of faith without a view towards the cross. Is there something weighing on you this morning? Something that is disrupting your confidence in God, your belief in God? Don't tackle that without the cross, because that is our confidence. At the beginning, I mentioned the story of two pastors. Perhaps you notice the similarity of this story to one of the most stunning narratives in Scripture found in Luke 24, a story that I presume this church holds very dear because it shares its name with it. Luke tells us about two followers of Christ who were dealing with the devastation of his death in the wake of crucifixion. Like these pastors, like the exiles, their life was in a state of chaos. Having abandoned everything to follow Christ, they were now left with the apparent reality that the person in whom they hoped was gone. But we know the rest of that story, don't we? On their walk, they're met by the person of Christ who opens up the scriptures and reveals himself to them. Friends, God does not promise us health or wealth or a worry-free life. His promises are not that superficial. Indeed, I would go on to say that the Emmaus Road is the road that most Christians must travel at some time. Doubt, in other words, will always be a part of the journey. But the consistent message of Scripture is that we never journey alone and that Christ has already secured our victory. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click Online Giving.